0: Book the Third Chapter Four Calm in Storm Dr. Manette did not return until the morning of the fourth day of his absence. So much of what had happened in that dreadful time as could be kept from the knowledge of Lucy was so well concealed from her that not until long afterwards— When France and she were far apart, did she know that eleven hundred defenseless prisoners of both sexes and all ages had been killed by the populace, that four days and nights had been darkened by this deed of horror, and that the air around her had been tainted by the slain, she only knew that there had been an attack upon the prisons, that all political prisoners had been in danger, and that some had been dragged out by the crowd and murdered. To Mr. Lorry, the doctor communicated under an injunction of secrecy, on which he had no need to dwell, that the crowd had taken him through a scene of carnage to the prison of La Force, that in the prison he had found a self appointed tribunal sitting before which the prisoners were brought singly, and by which they were rapidly ordered to be put forth to be massacred, or to be released, or, in a few cases, to be sent back to their cells. That presented by his conductors to this tribunal, he had announced himself by name and profession as having been, for eighteen years, a secret and unaccused prisoner in the Bastille. That one of the bodies, so sitting in judgment had risen and identified him, and that this man was Defarge that hereupon he had ascertained through the registers on the table that his son-in-law was among the living prisoners, and had pleaded hard to the tribunal of whom some members were asleep, and some awake, some dirty with murder, and some clean, some sober and some not, for his life and liberty. That in the first frantic greetings lavished on himself as a notable sufferer under the overthrown system, it had been accorded to him to have Charles Darnay brought before the lawless court and examined. That he seemed on the point of being at once released when the tide in his favor met with some unexplained check, not intelligible to the doctor, which led to a few words of secret conference. That the man sitting as president had then informed Dr. Manette that the prisoner must remain in custody, but should, for his sake, be held inviolate in safe custody. That immediately on a signal, the prisoner was removed to the interior of the prison again— but that he, the doctor, had then so strongly pleaded for permission to remain and assure himself that his son-in-law was, through no malice or mischance, delivered to the concourse whose murderous yells outside the gate had often drowned the proceedings, that he had obtained the permission and had remained in that hall of blood until the danger was over.' The sights he had seen there, with brief snatches of food and sleep by intervals, shall remain untold. The mad joy over the prisoners who were saved had astounded him scarcely less than the mad ferocity against those who were cut to pieces. One prisoner there was, he said, who had been discharged into the street free, but at whom a mistaken savage had thrust a pike as he passed out being besought to go to him and dress the wound the doctor had passed out at the same gate and had found him in the arms of a company of samaritans who were seated on the bodies of their victims with an inconsistency as monstrous as anything in this awful nightmare they had helped the healer and tended the wounded man with the gentlest solicitude had made a litter for him and escorted him carefully from the spot had then caught up their weapons and plunged anew into a butchery so dreadful that the doctor had covered his eyes with his hands and swooned away in the midst of it. As Mr. Lorry received these confidences, and as he watched the face of his friend, now sixty-two years of age, a misgiving arose within him that such dread experiences would revive the old danger— but he had never seen his friend in his present aspect. He had never at all known him in his present character. For the first time, the doctor felt now that his suffering was strength and power. For the first time, he felt in that sharp fire he had slowly forged the iron which could break the prison door of his daughter's husband and deliver him. "'It all tended to a good end, my friend,' It was not mere waste and ruin. As my beloved child was helpful in restoring me to myself, I will be helpful now in restoring the dearest part of herself to her. By the aid of heaven, I will do it. Thus Dr. Manette. And when Jarvis Lorry saw the kindled eyes, the resolute face, the calm, strong look and bearing of the man whose life always seemed to him to have been stopped, like a clock, for so many years, and then set going again with an energy which had lain dormant during the cessation of its usefulness, he believed— Greater things than the doctor had at that time to contend with would have yielded before his persevering purpose. While he kept himself in his place as a physician whose business was, with all degrees of mankind, bond and free, rich and poor, bad and good, he used his personal influence so wisely that he was soon the inspecting physician of three prisons, and among them of La Force. He could now assure Lucy that her husband was no longer confined alone, but was mixed with the general body of prisoners. He saw her husband weekly and brought sweet messages to her straight from his lips. Sometimes her husband himself sent a letter to her, though never by the doctor's hand, but she was not permitted to write to him. For among the many wild suspicions of plots in the prisons, the wildest of all pointed at emigrants who were known to have made friends or permanent connections abroad. This new life of the doctors was an anxious life, no doubt. Still, the sagacious Mr. Lorry saw that there was a new sustaining pride in it. Nothing unbecoming tinged the pride— it was a natural and worthy one, but he observed it as a curiosity. The doctor knew that up to that time his imprisonment had been associated in the minds of his daughter and his friend with his personal affliction, deprivation, and weakness. Now that this was changed, and he knew himself to be invested through that old trial with forces to which they both looked for Charles's ultimate safety and deliverance, he became so far exalted by the change that he took the lead and direction and required them, as the weak, to trust to him as the strong. The preceding relative positions of himself and Lucy were reversed— yet only as the liveliest gratitude and affection could reverse them for he could have had no pride but in rendering some service to her who had rendered so much to him all curious to see thought mr lorry in his amiably shrewd way but all natural and right so take the lead my dear friend and keep it it couldn't be in better hands But though the doctor tried hard and never ceased trying to get Charles Darnay set at liberty—or at least to get him brought to trial—the public current of the time set too strong and fast for him. The new era began. The king was tried, doomed, and beheaded. The Republic of Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, or Death declared for victory or death against the world in arms. The black flag waved night and day from the great towers of Notre Dame. Three hundred thousand men, summoned to rise against the tyrants of the earth, rose from all the varying soils of France, as if the dragon's teeth had been sown broadcast and had yielded fruit equally on hill and plain, on rock, in gravel, and alluvial mud under the bright sky of the south and under the clouds of the north. In fell and forest, in the vineyards and the olive grounds, and among the cropped grass and the stubble of the corn, along the fruitful banks of the broad rivers, and in the sand of the seashore. What private solicitude could rear itself against the deluge of the year one of liberty, the deluge rising from below, not falling from above, and with the windows of heaven shut not opened. There was no pause, no pity, no peace, no interval of relenting rest, no measurement of time. Though days and nights circled as regularly as when time was young and the evening and morning were the first day, other count of time there was none. Hold of it was lost in the raging fever of a nation, as it is in the fever of one patient. Now, breaking the unnatural silence of a whole city, the executioner showed to the people the head of the king. And now, it seemed almost in the same breath, the head of his fair wife, which had had eight weary months of imprisoned widowhood and misery to turn it gray. And yet, observing the strange law of contradiction which obtains in all such cases the time was long while it flamed by so fast. A revolutionary tribunal in the capital and 40 or 50,000 revolutionary committees all over the land, a law of the suspected which struck away all security for liberty or life and delivered over any good and innocent person to any bad and guilty one, Prisons gorged with people who had committed no offense and could obtain no hearing. These things became the established order and nature of appointed things, and seemed to be ancient usage before they were many weeks old. Above all, one hideous figure grew as familiar as if it had been before the general gaze from the foundations of the world— the figure of the sharp female called la guillotine. It was the popular theme for jest. It was the best cure for headache. It infallibly prevented the hair from turning gray. It imparted a peculiar delicacy to the complexion. It was the national razor which shaved close. Who kissed la guillotine looked through the little window and sneezed into the sack. It was the sign of the regeneration of the human race. It superseded the cross. Models of it were worn on breasts from which the cross was discarded, and it was bowed down to and believed in where the cross was denied. It sheared off heads so many that it and the ground it most polluted were a rotten red. It was taken to pieces like a toy puzzle for a young devil and was put together again when the occasion wanted it. It hushed the eloquent, struck down the powerful, abolished the beautiful and good. Twenty-two friends of high public mark, twenty-one living and one dead, it had lopped the heads off in one morning in as many minutes. The name of the strong man of old scripture had descended to the chief functionary who worked it. But so armed, he was stronger than his namesake and blinder— and tore away the gates of God's own temple every day. Among these terrors, and the brood belonging to them, the doctor walked with a steady head, confident in his power, cautiously persistent in his end, never doubting that he would save Lucy's husband at last. Yet the current of the time swept by so strong and deep, and carried the time away so fiercely that Charles had lain in prison one year and three months when the doctor was thus steady and confident. So much more wicked and distracted had the revolution grown in that December month that the rivers of the South were encumbered with the bodies of the violently drowned by night and prisoners were shot in lines and squares under the southern wintry sun. Still, the doctor walked among the terrors with a steady head no man better known than he in paris at that day no man in a stranger situation silent humane indispensable in hospital and prison using his art equally among assassins and victims he was a man apart in the exercise of his skill the appearance and the story of the bastille captive removed him from all other men He was not suspected or brought in question any more than if he had indeed been recalled to life some eighteen years before, or were a spirit moving among mortals. Book the Third Chapter Five The Wood Sawyer One Year and Three Months During all that time, Lucy was never sure from hour to hour but that the guillotine would strike off her husband's head next day. Every day, through the stony streets, the tumbrils now jolted heavily, filled with condemned. Lovely girls, bright women, brown-haired, black-haired, and gray, youths, stalwart men and old, gentle-born and peasant-born, All red wine for la guillotine, all daily brought into light from the dark cellars of the loathsome prisons, and carried to her through the streets to slake her devouring thirst. Liberty, equality, fraternity, or death. The last, much the easiest to bestow, O guillotine. If the suddenness of her calamity and the whirling wheels of the time had stunned the doctor's daughter into awaiting the result in idle despair, it would but have been with her as it was with many. But from the hour when she had taken the white head to her fresh young bosom in the garret of St. Antoine, she had been true to her duties. She was truest to them in the season of trial, as all the quietly loyal and good will always be. As soon as they were established in their new residence and her father had entered on the routine of his avocations, she arranged the little household as exactly as if her husband had been there. Everything had its appointed place and its appointed time— Little Lucy she taught as regularly as if they had all been united in their English home. The slight devices with which she cheated herself into the show of a belief that they would soon be reunited—the little preparations for his speedy return, the setting aside of his chair and his books—these, and the solemn prayer at night for one dear prisoner especially among the many unhappy souls in prison and the shadow of death, were almost the only outspoken reliefs of her heavy mind. She did not greatly alter in appearance. The plain dark dresses, akin to mourning dresses, which she and her child wore, were as neat and well attended to as the brighter clothes of happy days. She lost her color and the old and intent expression was a constant, not an occasional thing. Otherwise, she remained very pretty and comely. Sometimes, at night, on kissing her father, she would burst into the grief she had repressed all day and would say that her sole reliance under heaven was on him. He always resolutely answered, "'Nothing can happen to him without my knowledge,' and I know that I can save him, Lucy. They had not made the round of their changed life many weeks when her father said to her, on coming home one evening, My dear, there is an upper window in the prison to which Charles can sometimes gain access at three in the afternoon. When he can get to it, which depends on many uncertainties and incidents— "'He might see you in the street,' he thinks, "'if you stood in a certain place that I can show you. "'But you will not be able to see him, my poor child, "'and even if you could, it would be unsafe for you to make a sign of recognition. "'Oh, show me the place, my father, and I will go there every day.' "'From that time, in all weathers, she waited there two hours.' As the clock struck two, she was there, and at four she turned resignedly away. When it was not too wet or inclement for her child to be with her, they went together. At other times she was alone, but she never missed a single day. It was the dark and dirty corner of a small winding street. The hovel of a cutter of wood into lengths for burning was the only house at that end. All else was wall. On the third day of her being there, he noticed her. "'Good day, citizeness.' "'Good day, citizen.' This mode of address was now prescribed by decree. It had been established voluntarily some time ago among the more thorough patriots, but was now law for everybody. "'Walking here again, citizeness?' "'You see me, citizen?' The wood sawyer, who was a little man with a redundancy of gesture, he had once been a mender of roads, cast a glance at the prison, pointed at the prison, and putting his tin fingers before his face to represent bars, peeped through them jocosely. But it is not my business, said he, and went on sawing his wood. Next day he was looking out for her and accosted her the moment she appeared. What, walking here again, citizeness? Yes, citizen. Ah, a child too. Your mother, is it not, my little citizeness? Do I say yes, mamma? Whispered little Lucy, drawing close to her. Yes, dearest. Yes, citizen. Ah, but it's not my business. My work is my business. See my saw. I call it my little guillotine la 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 la. and off his head comes the billet fell as he spoke and he threw it into a basket i call myself the samson of the firewood guillotine see her again lo 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 and off her head comes now a child tickle tickle pickle pickle and off its head comes all oh, the family. Lucy shuddered as he threw two more billets into his basket, but it was impossible to be there while the wood sawyer was at work and not be in his sight. Thenceforth, to secure his goodwill, she always spoke to him first and often gave him drink money, which he readily received. He was an inquisitive fellow, and sometimes, when she had quite forgotten him in gazing at the prison roof and grates, and in lifting her heart up to her husband, she would come to herself to find him looking at her, with his knee on his bench and his saw stopped in its work. But it's not my business, he would generally say at those times, and would briskly fall to his sawing again. In all weathers, in the snow and frost of winter, In the bitter winds of spring, in the hot sunshine of summer, in the rains of autumn, and again, in the snow and frost of winter, Lucy passed two hours of every day at this place, and every day, on leaving it, she kissed the prison wall. Her husband saw her, so she learned from her father, it might be once in five or six times, it might be twice or thrice running, it might be not for a week or a fortnight together. It was enough that he could and did see her when the chances served, and on that possibility she would have waited out the day seven days a week. These occupations brought her round to the December month, wherein her father walked among the terrors with a steady head. On a light snowing afternoon she arrived at the usual corner, It was a day of some wild rejoicing and a festival. She had seen the houses as she came along, decorated with little pikes and with little red caps stuck upon them, also with tricolored ribbons, also with the standard inscription —tricolored letters were the favorite— Republic, one and indivisible, liberty, equality, fraternity, or death. The miserable shop of the wood sawyer was so small that its whole surface furnished very indifferent space for this legend. He had got somebody to scrawl it up for him, however, who had squeezed death in with most inappropriate difficulty. On his housetop he displayed pike and cap, as a good citizen must, and in a window he had stationed his saw inscribed as his little Saint Guillotine, for the great sharp female was by that time popularly canonized. His shop was shut, and he was not there, which was a relief to Lucy and left her quite alone. But he was not far off, for presently she heard a troubled movement and a shouting coming along which filled her with fear. A moment afterwards, and a throng of people came pouring round the corner by the prison wall, in the midst of whom was the wood sawyer, hand in hand with the vengeance. There could not be fewer than five hundred people, and they were dancing like five thousand demons. There was no other music than their own singing— They danced to the popular revolution song, keeping a ferocious time that was like a gnashing of teeth in unison. Men and women danced together, women danced together, men danced together, as Hazard had brought them together. At first they were a mere storm of coarse red caps and coarse woolen rags. But as they filled the place and stopped to dance about Lucy, some ghastly apparition of a dance figure gone raving mad arose among them. They advanced, retreated, struck at one another's hands, clutched at one another's heads, spun round alone, caught one another and spun round in pairs, until many of them dropped. While those were down, the rest linked hand in hand and all spun round together, then the ring broke, and in separate rings of two and four they turned and turned until they all stopped at once, began again, struck, clutched, and tore, and then reversed the spin, and all spun round another way. Suddenly they stopped again, paused, struck out the time afresh, formed into lines the width of the public way, and with their heads low down and their hands high up, swooped screaming off. No fight could have been half so terrible as this dance. It was so emphatically a fallen sport, a something, once innocent, delivered over to all devilry. A healthy pastime changed into a means of angering the blood, bewildering the senses and stealing the heart. Such grace as was visible in it made it the uglier, showing how warped and perverted all things good by nature were become. The maidenly bosom bared to this, the pretty almost child's head thus distracted, the delicate foot mincing in this slew of blood and dirt, were types of the disjointed time. This was the common yole. As it passed, leaving Lucy frightened and bewildered in the doorway of the wood sawyer's house, the feathery snow fell, as quietly, and lay as white and soft as if it had never been. Oh, my father! For he stood before her when she lifted up the eyes she had momentarily darkened with her hand. Such a cruel, bad sight! I know, my dear, I know. I have seen it many times. Don't be frightened. Not one of them would harm you. I am not frightened for myself, my father, but when I think of my husband and the mercies of these people, we will set him above their mercies very soon. I left him climbing to the window, and I came to tell you, there is no one here to see. You may kiss your hand towards that highest shelving roof. I do so, father, and I send him my soul with it. You cannot see him, my poor dear? No, father, said Lucy, yearning and weeping as she kissed her hand. No. A footstep in the snow. Madame Defarge. I salute you, citizeness, from the doctor. I salute you, citizen. This in passing, nothing more. Madame Defarge gone, like a shadow over the white road. Give me your arm, my love. Pass from here with an air of cheerfulness and courage for his sake. That was well done. They had left the spot. It shall not be in vain. Charles is summoned for tomorrow. For tomorrow? There is no time to lose. I am well prepared, but there are precautions to be taken that could not be taken until he was actually summoned before the tribunal. He has not received the notice yet, but I know that he will presently be summoned for tomorrow and removed to the conciergerie. I have timely information. You are not afraid? She could scarcely answer. I trust in you do so implicitly. Your suspense is nearly ended, my darling. He shall be restored to you within a few hours. I have encompassed him with every protection. I must see Lori. He stopped. There was a heavy lumbering of wheels within hearing. They both knew too well what it meant. One, two, three, three tumbrils faring away with their dread loads over the hushing snow. "'I must see Laurie,' the doctor repeated, turning her another way. "'The staunch old gentleman was still in his trust, had never left it. "'He and his books were in frequent requisition "'as to property confiscated and made national. "'What he could save for the owners, he saved. "'No better man living to hold fast by what Telsons had in keeping "'and to hold his peace.' A murky red and yellow sky and a rising mist from the sand denoted the approach of darkness. It was almost dark when they arrived at the bank. The stately residence of Monseigneur was altogether blighted and deserted. Above a heap of dust and ashes in the court ran the letters, National Property, Republic One and Indivisible, Liberty, Equality, Fraternity, or Death. Who could that be with Mr. Lorry, the owner of the riding-coat upon the chair, who must not be seen? From whom, newly arrived, did he come out, agitated and surprised, to take his favorite in his arms? To whom did he appear to repeat her faltering words, when, raising his voice and turning his head towards the door of the room from which he had issued, he said, "Removed." To the conciergerie and summoned for tomorrow.